this week on the In-Depth Podcast, the man regarded as the godfather of hip-hop, Russell Simmons. During our time in Bali, Russell remembered some of his toughest childhood moments long before he was a millionaire entrepreneur. I never shot a gun ever, okay. before or after that. Simmons co-founded Def Jam Records in 1984, the music label juggernaut that signed big name artists including Jay-Z, Kanye West, and LL Cool J. But it all came crashing down in 2017 when Simmons became the focus of several sexual assault claims during the Me Too movement. I've never spoken to a policeman. I've never spoken to a judge about anything. So who's the judge and the jury here? Simmons opens up about the fallout at his home in Bali, Indonesia. If the allegations are not true, why would all these women accuse you? Where he's now built a health resort centered around two longtime passions. This is yoga and vegan Disneyland. But we begin our conversation with how his parents influenced him growing up. Your parents met at Howard University. Uh, you wrote in your book that you could kind of tell their creative energy even early on. Um, your mom, uh, she was tough. Uh, you said something to the effect of uh, her skull could impact you even as deeply as her slap. Uh, how so? I loved her so much that, you know, when she said something, it had impact. She was a you know, great teacher and she very seldom would scold me. She was very supportive. If she would ever be cross with me, that would be, it would mean everything. So she was an artist as well as my father. They were both artists. And she respected and supported my choices, which were, you know, against the, you know, in black families, you know, I'm 66 years old. Back then, you'd be a school teacher. My father eventually became a professor of black history. You know, these are the highest aspirations. Being an entrepreneur or a promoter of parties or whatever it was I was doing early on, that is not something that uh, my father supported uh, and something that my mother she took all her last money and, and funded some of the work I was doing. $2,000 in $100 oh, bills she oh gave God, you, right? Why do I, you know more about me than me. It was about $2,000, yeah. I guess I wrote it in a book, right? <laughs> he studied, that's good, okay. Yes, she did, and that meant everything, right? That was the last time I borrowed from her, and it was obviously very fruitful and great for me. She passed young of cancer. Yes. Uh, from what I understand, she smoked until almost the day oh, she, she died. she wouldn't stop smoking. No. I mean, they say, oh, we, we think we got rid of the cancer. Okay. We got rid of the cancer. Okay. It came back. Okay. I mean, she smoked, right? Like mom smoked. She didn't, you know, uh, never stopped. And she didn't have much fear of death. Watching her pass, I learned a lot. I like think. what? She was a bag of bones, but she's like, not, you know, I never felt her fear of, of passing. And I think I, you know, it kind of affected me, you know. So be at ease, you know. I mean, of course, you could be full of anxiety over the smallest things, but death itself, I don't think I carry that much. And maybe, again, that might just be built in you, right? It's not something you probably can learn. But I, you know, I don't have a lot of fear of death, and my mother didn't either. What about your dad and passing from Alzheimer's? He was um, getting older and losing his relationship with, us in some ways or forget stuff and and uh it, it was also sick you know and older he just died of all i always view it as he died of old age mm -hmm. but yeah alzheimer's was a, a part of it he was so brilliant so watching him die hurt he was so hood like he came from the street 
he understood the street. He knew what I was up against living in Queens when it became this, you know, horrific uh, heroin capital of Queens. He knew I was up against. He measured the way he spoke to me about it. So he was cool and I could relate to him. I could share things with him or even if he found out things he shouldn't have, he could give me advice that was what I could take. And I was never that disconnected to him because of it. At the same time, he could quote Shakespeare all day and he could quote all the great black poets and all the stuff that fascinated him was stuff that was not really on the wheelhouse of most African-Americans his age. I was talking to your brother Danny the other day and he's like, I think uh, Russell was two and maybe I was six or something like that. Uh, your dad taking you guys daily to protests. Yes. Uh, one of which he ended up getting uh, uh, arrested at. Yes. Uh, so even early on, he was very active and exposed you guys to that. Well, uh, I think I got some of that from him. I spent most of my life as an activist, pissed off a lot of people, which I'm very proud of. I look back, you know, uh, I got that from my dad and who cared about others and worked hard to make sure that his presence meant something to other people, ones he didn't know, but ones who, um, and all of us, of course, were, you know, we're in black community 60 years ago, was uh, oppressed as it is today, but uh, maybe worse, pretty, not that much better in some ways. What do you think your parents having sent you to predominantly white elementary, middle school? They didn't send me, I was bust. I think that my relationship with the mainstream is helped in part form because I was bust. You find the sameness in people um, when you explore. But if you went to every, if everywhere you went was black, it's possible you could um, feel like, oh, those people are for business. These people are my friends. But of course, entertainment and most business, there's a friendship, there's a bond that's formed. And then you explore new ways, spend more time, and have a more quality relationship about your business and about your life. So. There really is this, you know, uh, uh, comfort level that you have to cultivate, right? And I find it, and that might be just my theory, and it might not be right. I really do believe busing uh, empowered people in a way. Of course, you went through, you had felt uh, racism. I was chased by white gangs, living, you know, going to my Were you? public school. Yeah, I would run over to the co-ops, and there were white people that protected me, and they were Jewish. But the Irish gang members, they called the Green Way in junior high school, would chase me and I would run to that co-op. And uh, that's kind of like a, a history with blacks and Jews that, you know, existed for a long time, right? Tell me about hunting for snakes in Jamaica, Queens. Well, we grew up in, in South Jamaica, Queens, uh, which, you know, was, uh, many years ago, we had a lot of woods. We go hunting for snakes. And they'd be black and yellow snakes and green snakes. The green snakes here are poisonous, so don't, don't pick them up. <laughs> but the green snakes there were just garden snakes. They could bite you, you could bleed, but so you catch them by the neck. And what, what made you bring up snakes? I just something that hadn't what been out there. About I your know upbringing. all this stuff. Like, all right, it's okay. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you about the drug culture back then. Explain why your brother would call the attic the rocket ship. Well, that's pretty clear. I mean, the rocket ship. I mean, Danny was not only uh, shot a lot of heroin, like myself, I didn't shoot heroin. I learned to smoke it eventually, but I never shot heroin. Never once. We used to say, never. We used to say that we don't get high if we don't shoot dope. 
But no, Danny with the acid and the, you know the LSDs and the, you know whatever different kinds of drugs he took, he called it the rocket ship. And I eventually moved up to live there, which is the, the attic of this house. And in that attic, uh, in that private house we had in Queens, uh, we had on the wall written all of the trips he took. Carved it with a knife. Carved it in, a knife in the walls. Yeah. It was like a, it was like a door, and in that door was all of his trips and the dates he took them and. And do you think your parents knew something was up? Well, yeah, they came to know um, uh, when he was a heroin addict more. But I think, you know, again, there was a level of tolerance in my house. There was a lot of tolerance in a lot of houses. I remember the house in the corner. They had people lined around the corner where they would sell heroin. Like, people would literally line up. Your dad once found the $1,000 cash yeah. of yours. How you... <laughs> yeah, um, he said, you big dummy, you're trying to break in jail. And when I was 14 and arrested for selling weed. And w- how did you respond? I responded by not getting arrested again and, and, and being more careful and eventually growing out of that lifestyle. I, just, I responded by living up to the becoming more like the person he wanted me to be. But you were reckless for a while. I think one point you were dealing like right next to a police station. Yes, but that was fake cocaine. I thought I was safe. This is how stupid we were. Yeah, how does that work? There was uh, some coca leaf incense that, you, okay. that, had, that when you took it, it would freeze your whole face up. And it must have had caffeine because people would shoot it with the heroin. And we would do 10 dimes at a piece. We would sell only bundles out of this apartment building. We were safer because we're selling fake cocaine. Everybody else is selling heroin in this building. And the cops caught you once and literally could not do anything. No, they, they put us in jail for a few hours. And what they did was tell us that, that the guy with us um, was a really bad guy. He had so many IDs, it was ridiculous. Uh-huh. And the police knew that he was really a criminal and they told us to stay away from him. We were college kids when we were selling the incense. Why would you take LSD every Friday? My goodness, you have a whole history. Um, it, was, it was one of the most beautiful things. I learned so much about myself and how to love myself and how to become a better uh, giver and uh, a more free person. So the hallucinogenic drugs were the best part of the drug experience for me. Was there a moment for you you knew you needed to stop or well, significantly Well, hallucinogenic drugs were only in high school, my final year doing it so regularly. Um, what about just drugs in general? Drugs in general. There yeah. was a moment when I was 30, I just quit everything. Why? Because it was making me late. I was a manager. I was building a company. I was tremendously successful. And I wanted to focus. I just said, New Year's Eve, I'm going to quit cocaine. I'm going to quit every drug, all of the drugs and cigarettes and alcohol. And I quit everything on that day. For years, I would like during the holidays, use drugs. And January 1st, I'd go back. People say, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, I spent the whole year sober. And then I remind myself why I hated it. But in general, um, I quit all uh, drugs and alcohol and cigarettes, everything on one day. Your brother used from 15 to 37. Uh, tell about uh, uh, Hazleton in Minnesota. That a rehab? You uh, sent him there. I, I mean, it was your funding that was oh, responsible well, for it, he said. Yeah, and he broke out. And then he quit anyway. I forget things like that. I almost forgot that I funded that uh, until you brought it up. I don't want to, uh, to give you a false sense that I have this great humility, which I, I don't have. I'm an absolute narcissist. But I can tell you that um, you should keep doing good deeds and not hold on to them too long. I didn't think of it that way. 
you know, was it great that you saved your brother? No, that's my brother. I was like, that was my job. And, you know, you do your job and keep going, right? What happened when you were 16 and you almost killed somebody named Red? Oh, that's in my book. I stood on, on the corner and sold uh, weed, and we had a good little corner of people that kind of protected themselves, and these guys would come and rob people and then leave. And, I mean, they would come, and the, I almost said their real names. I called Red in the book. Uh, they're dead, both dead. They um, robbed me. I mean, they put a knife in my ribs and took my weed, and I didn't see them. And then they came up on Hollis Avenue, and all of us, you know, and even the heroin dealers, like real serious, violent, you know, criminals, which I was a soft, violent criminal, not so violent criminal. But violent enough, we chased them, and we got them to a certain point, and, and Butch gave me uh, the gun, and I shot over his head, and he escaped. And um, But you were trying to hit him. Uh not really. No? No. And I never shot a gun ever okay. before or after that. Never shot a gun. That was the only time. And so that experience is like, you know, kill him, shoot him. Like, oh, right. And I shot over his head and he got away. But you wanted the people you were with at the time to believe think. I, Yeah, of course. How the f you miss him? I don't know. Within the next two days, maybe. But no longer than that, he and his brother robbed the liquor store and both got shot and killed. So we don't have to worry about them no more. Your early business days, how unhappy were your parents that you dropped out of college? My mother was not so unhappy. I had a hit record. My father wasn't so unhappy. I was a senior in college and Christmas rapping came out. I remember Christmas rapping playing on Christmas day. What was that moment like for you? Uh, it was magic. It was magical. My father was in the house. Like, you know, like, oh, shit. like, really? I mean, I, the next thing we know, we're on a plane to Amsterdam. It, it, and I'd never been on a plane. And yeah. we're going to Amsterdam, right? And they called me Mr. Simmons when I landed. I got off the plane, like, what would you like, Mr. Simmons? And Curtis Blow and I looked at each other, and I said, cocaine and sex. And they took us to, gave us both. This was the president of the Red Company. You said your dad wasn't that, uh, you know, worried about you dropping out. But I, when I was talking to... Danny, he's like, you know, my dad was always worried for Russell. Even when Russell had $10 million in, in the bank, my, my dad was less worried about me because I had a master's degree uh, than he was Russell. It was always education first, mm -hmm. right? So the fact that I got four years of college and, you know, it, and it did, of course, the experience of living in City College, going to City College, and then that's how I saw Eddie Chiba. Mm -hmm. That's how I found hip hop. And that's where uh, there was a cultural thing that was happening that was so amazing that inspired me to be um, focused and, you know, because everyone needs Dharma. We all need purpose. We need something that really pushes us uh, and that we can give to the world, something we can give. Everyone needs it. And so finding hip hop put my head on straight and sent me forward. And that was in Harlem at Charles Gallery. The first place I saw Eddie Chiba was in Charles Gallery. Mm -hmm. I never seen nothing like it. I began promoting parties right after that, immediately after that. And what do you think you learned from the Rush parties on your college campus? Well, I learned I could be independent and not do stupid I, I escaped. My life became too valuable to, to risk it selling drugs or fake cocaine or any of that. My whole life changed. And it was 
those early parties you were promoting that oh that the man I, before I even started I took my last of my drug money and put it into parties that was it I never looked back it has been said that uh, you were one of the few young guys on the rap scene back then that had any any long term goals how did your kind of business start developing from there long term goals is a stretch very early on. I had a, um, a belief system on what could happen like tomorrow morning. That was unbelievable, I think. I, I don't even know what I'm now because I watched the Beastie Boy documentary recently and they kept saying how I kept saying, you're going to be the biggest group in the world. Don't you worry, I promise you. And the and, you know, same with Run DMC and the same with you know, the artists that I produced and promoted. Uh, I was confident in their, in their talent and I was resilient in my support of their talent. You couldn't tell me that the Beastie Boys weren't going to be successful or run DMC. You couldn't tell me. And what? I had an imagination. And, uh, and I saw where they could go. And I had faith in them and faith in, uh, in some ways, in my ability to push them. I was going to say more faith in them or faith in your own ability A little to bit of get both. them there? A little bit of both because I could see the roadmaps on how to get them to the next level. Different from like seeing Foxy Brown and Jay-Z or Kanye West or all the other people in between. I was sure that Foxy Brown was going to be a huge star. Sure Jay-Z was going to be a star. I had to be the orchestrator and I had to execute every little piece to watch the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and some of the earlier artists go forward. I had to see it and actually do it. You know, and I didn't have a staff of 8 billion who saw the vision and were helping to make it happen. It's not as if, you know, you had this roadmap of, you know, successful people in your position or, you know, you had a lot of peers that were already killing it back then. So, like, what was it that made you feel like you could do it? I don't know. I just think magic. You can't fail until you quit. In fact, struggle is how you create a a great brand, a great idea, a great business because you're refining your vision. The role networking played in your success, you think's what? In general, I like people. And so if they have pieces to the puzzle, I could dig deeper. You know, I could find what was good in them. It seemed like that networking kind of played a, a key role in your success, whether that's, you know, New York. When I was a or, kid, I would go to, but I was a kid. St. Bart's or. Yeah, you know, St. Bart's. I mean, I would go as a kid to, to Hawaii before St. Bart's and hang out with the chairmen of all the companies. And I was just a kid. And they were all very nice to me. They were all a bunch of old Jewish men and me. <laughs> Every year. And Jeff Wald, God bless him, took me. And uh, how did I become friends with Jeff Wald? He said, what's this rap and he was like, you know, Helen Reddy's husband, and he's a manager of all these acts, and, and, so, uh, and he was, you know, like a big shot. That was my man. Like, I hung with Jeff all the time. And I met Irving Azops and the, the, the record people, and, and all of the most senior people. They were interesting to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't come to get anything in particular. I, I was interested in what they did, and I generally uh, was lucky enough to learn from them. I like people regardless of, you know, their backgrounds, their, their race, their religion, their, any of those things. So that really helped me when you talk about networking, to generally love people. Will Smith, 
how did you get connected with him early on and what was involved with managing his early career? Well, Will Smith's a good story because it had everything to do with how we built Def Jam and everything else. Um, although people say, oh, those are tough guys, those rappers. It was not about them being tough, it's about them being honest. Authenticity is everything, again. So Will Smith, he hates when I tell this story. Why? Because I'm going to tell it, you'll see. I mean, you know, because he's, he's got muscles, he's Will Smith. Will Smith will knock you out. I shouldn't say that in light of his most recent thing, but in general, Will Smith is, you know, a strong guy and tough enough to protect anyone. He had a song that starts out, my eye, my eye. He said, what happened? He got punched in the eye. And if you're from the hood, um, and the guy is two feet tall or a hundred or a, a giant, he punched you in the eye, you got to assess whether you're ready to shoot him if he's a certain guy, right? So I think he got punched in the eye by somebody from the hood over a girl. His line was, I'm going to hold my eye. It was very funny. And it was honest. And honesty was I always looked for. Why Will write you a $250,000 check? Because he's a really, really sweet man. He left me. I, w I had a deal at Fox, and he went to NBC. And, and we didn't know he was negotiating. We didn't, we didn't know anything. So he left. He had no contract. He said, I'm going to have to leave, you know, management and staying over here. And here's $250,000. Can you be more, I mean, to us, that was a lot of money. Right. Uh, my partner said, you know, he was working in the management company daily. He said that wasn't enough. But back then, he knew it was a lot. And, you know, it was very generous of him and gracious and good of him to, to do that. I saw Will say recently we had a contract, but we were never ones to enforce contracts for management. He wanted to take a different path. And so he said he bought me out. He didn't buy me out. I let him out of the contract and he gave me the money. And that's what happened. And I'm sure James Lassen and Will, if they would revisit it, would know that there was never a bond. He might have felt he had a contract. Some lawyer might have told him he had a contract. But our relationship with him was based on us going to work every day and enjoying the work. And so when he left, he left. And he gave me the money. You want to run through some other people played roles at various points in your life. The first one uh, being Rick Rubin. How about the role you think each of you played in one another's lives? The way I met Rick Rubin... In my, in my recollection of first recognizing him, I heard a record on the radio uh, commentating, illustrating, description, giving, adjective, experts, analyzing it. People of the universe, this is yours. Most amazing record. Like, oh, shit. I called up the radio because almost every record on the radio was something I managed. I had all the hot records on the radio. Here's this record. I call up Red Alert or Jazzy J. And Jazzy J, um, who played the record, introduced me to Rick Rubin. So I'm at Dan's interior, and he brings me Rick Rubin. I think, where's the guy who made It's Yours? It's him. And Rick took me to his dorm at NYU and played me all these beats. And back then, we were so beat-oriented. We were B-boys, and beats were everything. And Rick had a turntable full of beats. I mean, a, a drum machine full of beats. And a real, you know, uh, real good feel. I can tell from the day, first day. And so I, I was on the way to make a record deal. I had Rush Productions. I had all these successes. And Rick comes along and says, we want to start a record company. And I put, you know, $2,500, if I'm not mistaken, in. 
and we put out uh, the first LL Cool J record, I Need a Beat. And that began, and I abandoned the idea of making Rush records, and Def Jam became it. It was his logo at the time. What did working with Brian Grazier entail for you? Brian Grazier um, gave me the opportunity to produce a mainstream movie. It was my idea to do Nutty Professor. I was going to do it with Martin Lawrence. I wanted to do it for about $10 million or whatever. And he said, no, let's do it with Eddie Murphy. And I met with Eddie, and who I knew, and, and that, it started there. But anyway, Brian, I didn't realize it. I was riding around the go-kart doing what producers do, right? And the guy from BET was interviewing me. He said, no African-American rides around the go-kart and is producing mainstream movies, period. I mean, you could be a singer, or you know, if, if you're, or you could be Eddie Murphy maybe and get a credit as an actor, you know, invaluable piece. But just to ride around the go-kart, just to orchestrate, to help to read the script and rewrite the script, to help to choose a director, to help to do the branding, the marketing, to do, to oversee the soundtrack, to be the producer. There's no black people at all. And Brian Grazian didn't realize it, or maybe he did, but he enabled me. And uh, it, I'll never, you know, be thankful enough for what he did for me, for Nutty Professor 1, and paid me for Nutty Professor 2. Tommy Hilfiger. What do you think happened where it didn't work out uh, in terms of folding your kind of uh, clothing or fashion business into uh, his company? Because there was talks of that. At oh, yeah, point, we right? talked a lot. Tommy was such a great help to me and a mentor to me in fashion. And he really wanted to, to do something where we partnered. But, you know, uh, when you have a company the size of his, you don't want to lose. If you're going from 600 million one day, the next, next week you look at the projections, they're 720. You can't look at a company that takes so much work to get to 10. And so his heart was there. Lawrence Stroll and some of his partners, heart wasn't there. But he, he did so much for me. He helped me with distribution. He helped me with, with uh, fine sourcing and producing the products. He gave me so much. Uh, to this day, even now, Tommy Hilfiger is using my daughter as a model and really mentoring her. So I can never be thankful enough for his presence in my life. It's, it's, it, it's been a great ride. He is a, a great friend. What do you like as a partner in marriage? I must have been a partner of what I hear. No, I was very generous and tried to be supportive. We were together 15 years, Kimora and I, and for eight years we were married. Another seven before that, we were back and forth. And then I was best friends with Kimora throughout the entire raising of my children. I'm the godfather to all three of her other children. I was good friends with Jimin. I was good friends with this uh, Tim Leisner. So I tried to be as flexible and as... Uh, accommodating and supportive. And then, you know, sometimes things don't work out. Um, you may, you've seen there's a lawsuit. I had no choice. I think Jesus Christ, Muhammad, Lord Buddha, anybody would have sued. What? It's a lot of money and it can help a lot of people. She gave what is now today, based on the stock, $800 million to the government illegally. And now I'm fighting to get my half of it back. And it, um, and it was in, you know, in support of Tim, who, as you know, is a convicted criminal. And they stole 
I think it was six to eight billion dollars from the Malaysian people. Um, and nothing and now it's worth 16 billion dollars right and I was part of that process in fact it would never have existed if not for me that's a fact so I did the work and I owned the stock and then one day they just took it behind my back and gave it to the government as his bail and then it was only worth 60 or 70 million dollars and plenty of money for me I'm a billionaire I live in Bali it's cheap I have what I have I'm happy the fact that it's going to ballooned up to 800 million is, is quite a, maybe I should thank everybody if, you know, when it gets all resolved. But in the short term, there are people I can't help. There are philanthropic, social, and political concerns that I would normally help. What are the steps that have to happen? Well, I don't to, even go into legality. Yeah. Well, they're going to, the government has now moved back and said they want to negotiate. They want to go to trial over it because mm -hmm. they want to go to forfeiture. So they said they're going to negotiate. We hope that we can make a, a reasonable, I hate that I give them anything. I offered them 10% of my half. And then she's sitting on a bunch of it that she can't cash either. So the stock is totally at the mercy of the market, how much money it is. Mm -hmm. And it goes up sometimes what's equal to $100 million and down. I built this hotel thinking I had the stock too. So from a liquidity standpoint, it, you know, it really put a crunch on me. How so? No liquidity. I can't go do a lot of shit. I didn't make rapper money like Kanye West. I was a different era. But I made enough. And yes, there's a liquidity crunch. It's there. It's not, you know, I'll, I'll survive. How does it affect you? The only thing that affects me about this is my children being upset with me. I love them more than I love everything. And when my children have a narrative about me that is not accurate, and my children actually publicly say that I've been in some way uh, not acted uh, well in their be I've always, I've always been the one to hold space for them. They could curse me out, yell at me. They know that I love them unconditionally, that I cannot unlove them. Because there was a period where they called you emotionally abusive. They well, thought you might be I, mentally ill. Uh, do I seem I mean, mentally ill to you? I mean, you never know what's in the back of my head. Maybe yeah, I'm sure, crazy. Right. Well, you know, um, when, it, when I first um, sued, I said, you illegally took my money and you criminally gave it to the government as bail. You misrepresented who owned it. And the response is, you, yes, yeah, some of the money is yours, uh, but you've been abusive. Why am I the godfather to the three boys? Why did I go on every vacation with her and her husband just to be near my kids? And why did I continue to be the very best friend that she had? You can call anybody that's known us. None would agree with that narrative. None. You know, and um, so it's very hurtful. But you know what my job is? Not even to discuss it, really. There's nothing I can do to convince anyone, or nor should I need to convince people. I have not responded to any of the negative stuff in the media, the attacks, at all. Yesterday, you were with me when my daughter texted me. 
tomorrow I close on their new apartment, the 23-year-old and 21-year-old, to say that I'm a deadbeat when I paid $50,000 a month for 20 years and still pay. And I'm still signing a new lease for the two of them to live in Manhattan so one can model and the other one can go back to school. When this settles, I'm going to put a chunk of money in the account. They can tell both of us to f*** off. <laughs> That's the plan. I think that may be part of the reason we're not so quick to settle, because I would give them independence. What steps do you take to avoid letting it just destroy you as a parent? I meditate daily. I take my walks. I send nurturing and beautiful messages to them every day that I know that they digest. They send me back, I love you, thank you. And I accept that, uh, and, and I haven't spoken publicly about this, I'm telling you this stuff, I, I accept that uh, this may not be a good move. I, you know, the, the, the public spat you saw started when I said a mother should make it easy for a father to see a child. The day I sued her mother, it stopped following me on Instagram. That day. And that day that her mother said, you'll never speak to them again, and so I speak to them behind their back almost every day. And I still support them. But, you know, it's tough. They started to receive a different narrative and started to really be more difficult to manage my relationship with them. I think that they're old enough to know that their parents aren't perfect. Their mother loves them and their father loves them. And the dispute that we have will be resolved. They know I found and created and reformulated and branded and built that company. They know that I owned half of it. But I don't think it's up to them to judge or have to make any decisions about it. I did say when I guess, could you tell your mother to call me? You with her every day, you know what she did. Can you call her to the table? I can't unlove her, right? Much less unlove my children. So I, I know that it'll be resolved. You still think, love your ex-wife? Well, you know, I love what she's done for my children. I love the experiences we had together. And I know that she's suffering. Hurt people hurt people. Right? And I know the beauty that's inside of her. I know that she knows she made a terrible mistake by giving this government to stop. And I know that she knows, as she said, even when she responded to the lawsuit. And I don't know why we're still fighting over it, because it, it would help a lot of people if we freed it up. President Trump, I know you just spoke to him the other day. Well, um, that was my man. Um, that was my man. We did so much together. We traveled a lot. We held, you know, it was kind of like, you know, today someone would say it was a toxic masculine bond. I flew to all of that, all of the uh, Miss Universe kind. I was a judge. Um, that was one of the things we did. But we really also, we would go to Mar-a-Lago all the time. He would love to bring me to Mar-a-Lago. And he would say, look, I got Jews and I got blacks. But he loved that. Look at these wasps got to deal with. Country club like this with Jews and blacks. He would, that's my friend Russell, and tell everybody, right? Because there were no Jews and blacks in country clubs. So Donald Trump was, you know, so proud to talk about all the Jews he had in his country club and the African-Americans he let in. But that wasn't why he brought me, just to show me off. We would laugh about everything. He was crazy. What do you think led the two of you to being close? Because at one point, you guys were talking like two or three times a day, I think. I would talk all the time to Donald. We'd do all things. We had all kinds of fun stuff that we did together. I'd go to the fight with him. I'd go to his weddings. I mean, we were friends, you know? And, and um, <clears throat> when he ran for president, unfortunately, I didn't think he was a 
suitable for president. You know, instead I was surprised at the choice he was making that were polarizing us and it hurt. How did that impact the relationship? Well, the minute he ran for president, I said I'd, I'd rather Kim Kardashian be president. I was on TV and said that. And he called my office and he sent over an article and then he also uh, wanted to ask if I said it. I mean, it's on CNN and it's also on YouTube because they're both reality stars, right? Yeah, right? I didn't think either one was qualified to be president. And I said I'd rather her. Well, she's compassionate. We know she's not saying some of the things he was saying that were very hurtful, in my opinion. What do you think of the job he did as president? You know, people will probably not like me for this, of course. You know, none of, nothing he said is true about so many subjects. So, I mean, most things he said. Um, he's a little bit of a narcissist. We all are. He's certainly proven to be that. Um, and... You know, he's, he's really in a lot of trouble now for things that, rightfully so, he's in trouble. It's funny because, you know, I'm, I've been a flaming liberal in someone's mind for what I really was as a real progressive. And I'm a compassionate, I'd like to say, and progressive person. So every kind of equal right uh, that we could give, I was always a gay rights activist. I was always a women's activist. So the Democrats have always been better in many ways on things that a lot of the things I care about mostly been better. Uh, my guru, in fact, said you cannot be political. If you're a servant, then sometimes it's going to be political and you should show up, whether it be to vote or to be an activist or you're a servant. You have some things you're called to do. How did Deaf Comedy Jam impact you and your career? The first uh, comedy we saw that was Deaf Comedy Jam-like was Robin Harris, and we wanted to produce a show with him because it was not only his show that he had in Crenshaw, but it was all the clubs around the country where this uh, new group of comedians were emerging. And so there were great comedians all over the country, undiscovered, that needed exposure. So we thought Robin Harris would be our host. Robin Harris, unfortunately, passed. So then I went to Eddie Murphy and asked him if he wanted to host it, and he recommended Martin Lawrence. And so that's how it got started. And, you know, there was just a wealth of talent. There was a guy named Bob Sumner who was a talent scout, traveled all over the country and, and brought these people to us. We would have these showcases, and I'd be amazed at how many great people came forward. Jamie Foxx and Cedric the Entertainer, Bernie Mac and Chris Tucker and Dave Chappelle, and I could just go on, so many. Kevin Hart and just so many, Tiffany Haddish and um, all of these guys, Steve Harvey, did I say Steve Harvey, there's so many that became giant stars after one performance on Deaf Comedy uh, because it was timing. It was these people needed their exposure and once people got a taste of it and it became a cultural phenomenon, not just the comedy show that we produced, but the comedy, uh, the thirst for it grew as there's so many talented people that were just driving the marketplace. You know, we probably did hundreds of, ep over 150 episodes. How did it impact your business? The Def Comedy Jam kind of helped to reaffirm Def Jam's name. When Def Jam fell into deep debt, the name was so valuable that we were able to, and, and also some belief in us that, that we could come out of the hole. The name really meant a lot, and the company had cultural significance. Trump helped reinforce the value of name to you, right? What Trump did, and that's why it was Russell Simmons' deaf comedy, Jim, Trump said he bought the Tiffany building 
and he's going to call it Tiffany. No, I'm going to call it Trump. And he talked about brand building, personal brand being more. So Trump kind of helped me with that, yeah. Def Comedy Jam helped to reaffirm Def Jam's significance. Because Def Jam was such a cultural space. I mean, imagine that we managed Big Daddy Kane and we managed um, EPMD at one time before we signed him and Nice Smooth before we signed him. And we managed um, Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and Eric B and Rakim. And we managed everybody. And Def Jam was the center piece. They weren't on our label, but we were better at distributing and managing and branding and we were, we were the, the home. So all of those people are kind of Def Jam, they all wore Def Jam jackets. You're on another label, you're wearing a Def Jam jacket. You're cool. So Def Jam felt like the epicenter of hip hop culture. And so when we got into debt and the company wasn't doing so well, we were able to, to stay alive because the brand was so strong. Selling your business. Uh, you said in the record business, companies that have deals like Def Jams with Sony always go out of business. Explain that. Well, I mean, in my book, I said that it's, it's true that they have a joint venture. They make money. They generally didn't own their masters back then. They just, you know, owned 50% of the profits. And, you know, they get cold. Like Def Jam got cold. It was the end of it, right? They were going to kill us. But the name was big enough. Our resilience was strong enough. And we were able to, to take the company, which was, I think, um, 13 or 14 million dollars in debt and we got like 30 million dollars we ended up with 17 in our pocket and another joint venture but the catalog that they bought because they bought it um was uh was was valuable what do you think you learned from going through that experience with sony well <clears throat> sony didn't want us and polygram did and polygram believed in our future and sony didn't um so I, what i learned was you know there's always another buyer you know, if you have something valuable, there's a buyer. Your company was out of money at the time. and We were you broke. Had no, we were $13 no million dollars in debt, and we found a buyer. I thought there was another buyer beside them, but we got them, and they paid a good number. And immediately, the company got caught fire, right? So many hit records came after that, and the company started to really excel. DMX put out two albums in one year. Jay-Z was hot. Ja Rule. So we had Def Squad. We had Rockefeller, we had Rough Riders, we had all these labels, Outburst, we had Murder, Inc. These are huge success stories on their own. And it was impossible to take just RLL, Cool J, Public Enemy, whatever was on Def Jam, to the radio and those records. It was impossible. But each label had their own identity, and each label excelled on their own with us managing and and nurturing the, the, uh, the executives. When I say Hip Hop 50, what comes to mind? I mean, yes, I was involved in Jay-Z and Kanye and Beastie Boys and Run DMC and all in between. And I have a commitment to Hip Hop 50 to get the DJ Hollywoods and the Eddie Chibas and Love Bug Starsky, the masterminds. Before rap was a recording art, it was a performing art. So these great performers, who made it so that we could record, have not gotten compensation or credit. And I wanna make that my mission for this year, that I'm a part of, not only through the Hip Hop Museum, but through ev everything that I do regarding Hip Hop 50, that I highlight the reason that we're here, the shoulders of the masterminds of hip hop that we stand on. It was fun 
working on uh, producing Run DMC, you know, and my brother becoming a big star was a, a, a miracle and a lot of fun. And my first artist, Curtis Blow, was we recorded that record. There were no rap records. So I was there from the beginning and I've seen it. They're just not telling the, the, the proper story about the founding fathers of hip hop or they're leaving some people out. And I think while people are still living, it's a crime not to tell the story accurately. How do you do that? I'll do it. I'll figure out ways. Um, I got Snoop the other day, played Yankee Stadium. I had Snoop bring DJ Hollywood on the stage. Or I, you know, I'm Hollywood and Eddie Chiba being honored now by the Black Museum. I'm getting the messaging out that some of the guys who have been overlooked should be um, recognized. Explain how you've used hip hop as a tool of education and enlightenment over the years? Well, look, look hip hop helped change all those laws, drug laws. Hip hop uh, is a whole educational uh, platform. There's some friends launching Hip Hop University. I'm helping them. Um, hip Hop has, you know, we used it in the summit. We had 10,000 people in Detroit. Eminem was the host. And Houston was Beyonce. And, you know, all the cities, the stars, Nelly was in St. Louis. I mean, so we would have 10,000 kids come out and we would teach people financial literacy. And we would also do anti-gang activity uh, work, work with the hip hop community. And it was a fun experience. We did like 50 cities. And it was something that I was really uh, inspired to do and lucky enough to, to help lead. I'm pretty old. I've been around and I've seen a lot. And hip hop has done a lot. So I've been on the ride, a carpet ride with these guys. And I'm very lucky for that. When your career is looked back on, what would you like people to most take away from it? Getting the 10,000 people out of jail, changing the drug laws. And God knows how many people wouldn't go to jail because those laws were changed. Uh, that was a, a moment that I, I will not forget. Other than that, um, just watching them all, I was watching uh, the Bad Boys 1, and I remember managing Will Smith and launching Martin Lawrence, and I see them together. Like, wow. And I do that every day, I mean, all the time. You know, I watch Steve Harvey and Bernie Mac and Dave Chappelle, and the launching of these people's careers and watching them do good. It's the ripple effect. The ones that became philanthropic and political and politics for the good of the collective, you know, and the ones who really had an impact on the lives of others, uh, I kind of secretly take a little credit for that. Like I was there, this guy wouldn't be famous, wouldn't be able to do, you know, so something like that. You know, I watched Jay-Z, what an inspiration he is. I watched Kanye, and uh, what a brilliant business guy he is. And, you know, Run DMC, Reverend Run the Preacher, he's still an inspiration in a lot of ways for people, you know, as a preacher, even his, what he puts on Instagram, how he speaks to people. LL Cool J, what he's doing now to help all the underserved, uh, the same thing I talked about, Hip Hop 50, um, about artists who maybe not getting enough credit for the work that they contributed to the culture. And he has that Rock the Bells and I watch him become a big TV star. And, you know, I've seen people um, come from out the hood that might not have made it, that were not for the team around me and some of my efforts, they wouldn't be there, right? And there's a little bit of pride in that, a little bit of pride. What would you say is your biggest professional success? Well, finding Rick Rubin, finding Kevin Lyles, finding Leo Cohen, finding talented people, 
I was surrounded by talent. Very lucky that God put these people in front of me and around me. And so I've always had more talented people than myself. This is where my success came from. But in 2017, Russell Simmons stepped away from his businesses and charities after being accused by several women of sexual assault. What did he do? He raped me right up against the wall. Excuse my language. But he, that's what he did. I had to keep this secret. He showed up naked wearing a condom and tackled me to his bed while I screamed and fought and said no and cried. That's rape. Those female voices were two of his accusers speaking to CBS this morning. Simmons has maintained his innocence amid accusations from 20 women, dating as far back as 1983. Simmons has never been criminally charged and was not sued under New York's Adult Survivors Act, which allowed sexual assault survivors to sue for a one-year period regardless of the statute of limitations. That act expired on November 23, 2023. If the allegations are not true, why would all these women accuse you? I heard someone else say this, you know, that I was quite frivolous. Look, there's a song by Houdini, I'm a hoe, you know, I'm a hoe. Three different girls after every show. Culturally, we thought that was the right way. And a number of sexual partners and compromising positions I put myself in is beyond anybody's imagination. You said and, you had more foursomes than most men have partners. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and that was, that wasn't really, that was just, I think it was cultural and silly and egotistic and, and sad and, and from an insecurity that feeds it. And there's a lot of reasons why we were that way. If you slept with as many people as I slept with, thousands. And we're talking about six people. There were like 20, right? I mean, they, oh, they I, oh, range I, from oh, I spoke assault poorly. Oh, you mean like, that's not, no. Yeah. I, I spoke poorly to, to 15 of them. I mean, 12 of them. I spoke poorly all the time. I'm a deaf comedy jam guy. I was crude. So how many compromising situations was I in? And if you call that person and say, can you help me help these other women, then you can get them to tell a story and reimagine a story. And I'm not here to say what they were thinking, but I can simply tell you that I was in so many compromising situations that people can have a recollection from 30 or 40 years ago. And it can be different from my recollection. And it could be one where there was perhaps collaboration we had more foursomes than most guys had once, could someone leave and feel hurt? Could someone leave and feel they wish they hadn't? Could someone reimagine a story out of thousands of people? Could someone want notoriety in a market where people thirst for fame, even infamous? Could someone who just came out of jail and want to sue you? because they had an experience and they can reimagine it just a little bit different. And could you be vulnerable enough to accept it? I took nine lie detector tests. People don't know that. Nine separate. Seven from the chairman of the Polygraph Association. One for each of the serious accusations. One for the, when someone said, for instance, I was violent. One person said that. I've never been violent. Took that. And one for I apologized. I never apologized about assaulting anyone. 
But if two people say it, because one said it and me too, and second person said it, then I took a test for it. Three hours per test by two polygraph examiners. One that I've never done this to anyone and one I've never done to each individual. Some people say that they're not accurate, but if they're 94% accurate, I did nine of them, it's pretty clear that uh, I don't believe it. I even asked if, well, what if I believe it, but it's not true? He said, your subconscious will get you. I said, I don't know how true that is, but that's what was told to me by the chairman of the Polygraph Association. He was filmed, by the way, you know, talking about this. So there's footage available. No one in the mainstream would cover that. Why do you think that is? There's a narrative. Which is what? That um, we, we don't want to go backwards. We want to believe with it. But women and celebrities may be in some cases a little different. But we don't want to not believe women. We have to believe women. We have to give them the benefit of doubt, but we can't demonize people without proof either. Twitter cannot make a decision. I've never spoken to a policeman. I've never spoken to a judge about anything. So who's the judge and the jury here? Maybe you haven't lived in the, in a, in a, in the real world. It's gray. You know, no one's intentionally hurt anybody. It's a big difference. No one pushed anybody in. Being pushy is different from pushing someone. It's very gray. Rape is a strong allegation. And some of these stories were that you pinned women down. I mean, like bad stuff, you know, either happened or it didn't, right? Yeah, I, well, you know, it, um, it's a serious word, but I think they've changed the meaning. How so? Because I've never been violent to anybody. The rape is a violent crime. So it is a very serious. Somebody jumps out of bushes and rapes somebody. It's different, I think. So it's a different kind of um, recollection. I mean, so I don't think anybody's saying I'm violent. Of course, I've been insensitive. But I certainly I've never been forceful in any of my relationships. All of what I've had has been consensual. What errors in judgment do you think you made looking back? Oh, my goodness. You know, we all need to learn to be better listeners, all of us. Um, I think that the culture and the climate was different and the way people interacted was different. And I think to judge um, 40 years ago as if it was today, we get in trouble. We have to accept where we were and move on and be somewhere else in the future if we don't like where we were. And I think that we're doing that now. And I think that's the good that comes from me too. And, you know, I think this next generation should be more sensitive and we should have a new way forward. And this is helping us to form a new way forward. Um, it's a great movement. It's done a lot of great work for women. It sensitized men in ways they were not sensitized. And for that, I'm grateful. If you had a do-over with that period, what do you think you would do differently? A lot, but I don't have a do-over. This is the thing about practicing, being here now, and accepting what you learned and move forward. We can't do over. I haven't spoken to anybody for five years. It's ruined my life. It's ruined my relationship with a lot of, lot of everything. All my five charities have gone down. I had a lot of work, I had a lot of people I was trying to help, I had a lot of things I was doing. 
and I've been locked out of it. I don't want this to be the trigger to turn everything around again. At some point, somebody's going to ask you about this, so why not do it in a controlled environment where in the you control, give your thoughts? Are you going to Graham? No. All right, so, well, let's go. Explain why November 23 is an important month for you. Oh, well, you know, they've had a year, the accusers, to sue me, and I haven't been sued. But I kind of believe that a lot of stuff's been the media. First of all, 40-year-old stories are quite, you know, quite hard to prove, I guess. But in civil suits, maybe not. But they're 40-year-old stories, but they've been covered by the media. But I, I, don't, I can't speculate as to why I haven't been sued. But, you know, uh, we're talking about six serious accusations. What did you think of the doc? I didn't watch it. Why not? Because it's not true. And I think that uh, Oprah said the stories don't add up. Uh, Oprah also came out and said she believed the women. I stand in support of these women. I believe them. It was a hard decision because I knew that Russell Simmons had started publicly pressuring me mm -hmm. and that me pulling out of the documentary was going to look like I was being pressured. Um, how do you square the, the two well, in terms of her, her? She said she believed women. But if you want to call Oprah, I can give you her number. She made a movie about some women and then made a very public that she was making the movie and that she made the movie. And then she walked away. She has not come back in support. Isn't she a supporter of black women or not? You should call her. She will not defend those women. Those are black women that she said she supported. She will not defend them. She cried on the phone to multiple witnesses that she didn't even know because she learned that hurt people hurt people and, and that her stories, uh, as an investigative journalist herself, she know those stories should never have been printed, much less made a movie about. What conversations did you and Oprah have during that process? Well, the first thing I, I called her and I said, I'm glad it's you making the movie because people rushed to judgment and you're, you're a reporter. I said, well, have you spoken to anybody who was there at the time or around that time? And then she called them. She studied them. She read their books. And then that caused her to walk away from the movie. What she had said, just to be clear on like CBS this I have, morning, I have, was, was that she felt more time was needed and to make a whole documentary, not about me. Wouldn't. She said to change it. She said to change the whole thing. It's what she told me, she told okay. him. She wanted to change the entire thing to a documentary about men in general, about the whole music industry, and that I couldn't be a subject anymore because she had found too much contradictory evidence about the stories about me. That's what she told him. And that's why you could ask her that. Everybody she interviewed, she taped. She taped about 20 witnesses. Those tapes are available. If you're investigating this, maybe you should dig into those tapes. I don't want to go far into this discussion because it is a very sad moment. It was the most traumatizing experience in my entire life. It hurt my children. There are people with 40 accusations. You'd be interviewing them right now, and this subject wouldn't come up. Well, so yeah, I feel it, a little bit targeted, but please continue. And I was going to say, to be clear, this is not an investigation. You have not really talked about this before, and so I was merely 
trying to get your thoughts okay. on, on Well, I don't want to sound defensive, but the, yes, I told my children I would not speak about this. Yoga, GDOS, and Hip Hop 50 are the three remaining topics. And I want to get a little bit with you sitting down about yoga and GDOS. Since you then can we shape can... my life to be a good life and be a servant to God, or you can f*** me up. It really is that, it really is, it could be that dramatic. You know, and I've been, it, it's been, because I left, and I spent so much time here, people have assumed that I really left and ran, even though I'm back in America all the time. I'm behind the eight ball. So I don't like expecting you to put yourself, make you look like you're wrong about anything or that you're, you're, you're in favor, but you, you have the, the tools. Please don't f you, me you have the tools to provide context, and context in any story is everything. Everything? Yeah. What have the past five to six years been like for you since 2017? Well, I've written four books. I built a hotel. We have a talent agency that has 300 people working all around the world. And I live in Disneyland, yoga and vegan Disneyland. So God gave me a new lease on life and new things. Also a lot of self-reflection. How can I make that better? How can I be a better person? So I just got to accept that what I've been through is God's way of, you know, uh, 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 refocusing me on being a better servant. These five years have been both a gift and a curse. How's it been a curse? Well, it's been a curse because I've been demonized in ways that, and I could never defend myself enough. There's no way you can defend yourself. So for me, I have to accept the scar that they've demonized me in ways that I don't see myself and people who know me don't see. And at the same time, I accept responsibility for having been uh, insensitive. I've been a lot of things. Never, never intentionally hurt anyone. I know people are hurt, but I didn't intentionally hurt anyone. And I was never told by anyone that such a thing occurred. People will decide whether you are a good or bad person or bad or innocent or good uh, by their pain body and their experiences. That's what's going to decide how they feel about you, and you can't change them. And, uh, and again, I have to live with the scar. Oprah declined to comment for this episode. We also reached out to those who accused Simmons of rape, with Drew Dixon saying in part, Russell Simmons raped me. He knew that I did not want to have any kind of sexual contact with him whatsoever, so he set a trap as my boss to sexually assault me. Sherry Sher and Salai Abrams stand by their stories, their attorney's statement including Simmons' denials and failure to confront the brutal legacy of what he blithely describes as his lifestyle are shameful. And the attorney for Jenny Lumet said her, quote, November 30th, 2017 statement speaks for itself, and she has no further comment. That concludes my chat with Russell Simmons. We also spent some time seeing what his life is like in Bali at his GDOS resort. To see those clips, head to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Thanks again for listening.